Today's episode of the podcast is brought to you by Will Darn and Sons Vermin Extermination Service. Hello, my name is Roger Wildern. I am here on behalf of my sons at Wildarn Vermin Extermination Service. Do you have giant bugs? Perhaps a giant rat? I've got a solution for you. Using all of the latest technologies, we can cure that problem in your basement or your attic. Why trust pesky adventurers? who have proven to steal your money or die with my sons Rogar and Godger we can do you good you're listening to Young Grognar a Dungeons and Dragons podcast a haven for all things nerdy and dungeonous. Enjoy. Greetings all witches, warlocks, and those who killed goblins before it was cool. Those who dumped charisma and failed swim checks in their kiddie pool. My name is Grognard the Young, the youngest of the Grognards. Uh, and I am uh, bringing you another episode of the podcast, live loaded and ready to rock, with my good buddy Ryan. Ryan, say hi. Hi. <laughs> so anyway, uh, today for the podcast, we've got a pretty interesting episode for you. Uh, we're going to be trying something a little bit more free-flowing, a little bit more creative uh, than the last episode. And we're going to be doing something where we try to build an adventure on the air. Uh, I find that uh, building adventures and building quests is one of those intimidating things for new DMs, and they feel the need to turn to pre-published or feel the need to go to generators or something like that. And there's nothing wrong with turning to a generator uh, for making your first adventures, but I want to take the fear out of building your first adventure and show you that not only is it easy to do, but it can be very fun. And it can be a quick process that really gets creative juices flowing. So even if the first adventure you try to create isn't that great or doesn't ever come to fruition, you can take those ideas, recycle them, and use them elsewhere. So with this episode of the podcast, do with it what you will. Take with it what you want. Um, but yeah, so without further ado, we're going to be looking at the Dungeon Master's Guide for the 5th edition of the game. Uh, we're going to be using the adventure structure section here where they have laid out a random generation tool for making adventures, both dungeonous, uh, dungeonous and wilderness based. Um, this is on page 73 in the Dungeon Master's Guide. Uh, so without further ado, we will bring out the Dice of Fate. Dice of Fate. And we will start rolling up uh, one of two adventures. I'm thinking we could probably do a Dungeonous one and then do a Wilderness one. And we're going to try to just kind of fit in all the pieces and give sort of our take on how we would uh, build, a dun uh, build an adventure like this if we were just doing it any old other time as a DM. Um, so yeah, would you like to roll the dice? Yeah, I think I can probably handle that. I swear to God, if you fumble on this first roll. You know what? I'm just taking it after my heroes. 
It'll be an 11. All right, so solid. So for the first thing we rolled on here on this list is a dungeon goal. So the dungeon goal for a number 11, as provided by Rygra, uh, we are to slay a dragon or some other kind of challenging monster. So already, this is something of a kill quest. But what I think is kind of interesting about the concept of a kill quest is when you add one element of complexity to killing the beast. Or perhaps maybe not even killing it in a traditional means. So... I don't want to say we, uh, you know, frozen carbonite a Han Solo on this one, but there might be some sort of, you know, elemental creature that can't be killed with mere swords and, and with axes and magic. Perhaps there's some sort of, I don't know, corny, you know, 90s fantasy movie vibe where you have to kill it by using its own element against it or something. Does anything come to mind immediately for you, Ryan? Um, well, I was just going to say, the nice thing about this one is this is sort of what everyone kind of signs up for D&D for as a player you come to the table and you get sort of presented with a go into dungeon and slay this monster kind of quest and that's exactly what people are expecting so it gives you a lot of opportunities like um dan was just mentioning there uh where you can you know sort of subvert that or come up with a creative way to bring about that end goal so it gives you a lot of room for flexibility just because of how intrinsically D and D like it is. You're going to enter a dungeon and end something's life because you're an adventurer. Fair enough. So, would you like to add another goal on top of this? I feel like because this one's kind of simplistic, it almost makes sense that we add one extra degree of complexity. So, go ahead and roll a d12 for me. You know, uh, shout out to the d12. Uh, often mistaken for a d20 and often overlooked and unloved. Uh, the d12 and coming that's to be a, a five. All right, I was going to plug a D12 advertisement, but... Okay. Our, you know, our D12 sponsor doesn't pay us that much. Yeah, it's, we're, we're not making much here. Uh, D12, for when 2D6s was just too many dice. Um, so we got a 5 on that. So on the other goals list, a number 5 will give us salvage an object or goods from a lost vessel or caravan. Huh. So that's kind of an interesting one to tag on there with the giant beast. So perhaps killing that monster, I guess maybe in my head when I thought of this, and it mentioned slaying a dragon or some other challenging monster, in my head I almost thought of it as kind of dormant or something that already had something of a lair. But the idea that we have to go salvage an object or goods from a lost vessel or caravan, I, well, the first thing that screams into my head is the concept that maybe this caravan was one of many that got taken off a trade route, or maybe a vessel that got sucked underwater into some grotto or cave underwater or something by this new threat. So perhaps this beast is newly arrived, and the fact that the party has to go and get something from some caravan, you know, maybe some group of librarians have some important text they're trying to bring to a sage in this next town over that the party happens to be at, but this big evil monster happened to swipe the caravan with that book in it, and they have to go get that, as well as kill the beast. Um, anything come to mind for you for salvaging? Um, I'd say this could present an interesting opportunity for role-playing and kind of playing with uh, alignment and how the group works together. As you could say, this is like maybe a tax collector's van or cart or something like that. So it's filled with just all of these um, just gold from collected from all these villagers. And so the party has a chance to sort of skim a little off the top for themselves or just return all the gold right to the people who are expecting this tax collector to come back and, you know, pay for paving roads and militia and all that stuff. And, like, sort of make the decision of, you know, how much good will it do 
the party to keep the gold for themselves or whatever else they're salvaging against returning it to its rightful owners. Why not go one degree even more complex than that and suggest that that money or the goods that are being sent over here belong to a more nefarious group? The group is willing to pay a good portion or percentage of that wealth that's been lost in order to keep, one, the money that the party's bringing back under hush, and two, just to bring the money back as part of the job. What if the party then feels the imperative to, you know, in place of that tax money that Ryan had just mentioned, what if they plan on, I don't know, double-crossing the evildoers there who got that money through nefarious means and provide that money to the town that needs it desperately? I'm sure this giant monster coming into town and squashed a bunch of townies and guards and, you know, walls and houses, they, they probably need some wealth right now. So maybe the party makes a new sort of enemy out of all this by doing the uh, evildoers wrong in this. Um, okay, so evildoers uh, brings us to our next point, which, Ryan, if you will grab a d20 and roll it for me, we have our adventure villains. 15. So a 15 will bring us a humanoid of some variety, which, you know, oddly enough, over the years, humanoid has taken on a different meaning slowly over time. Like, in the, in the first edition, humanoid was sort of a term that applied to everybody, and then they made demi-humans, which was pretty much anybody who wasn't a human. And then, like, third edition decided that orcs and goblins were no longer considered humanoids. Um, but anyway, rant over. Uh, Fifteen. Humanoid schemer seeking to rule. So, interesting. Perhaps, uh, unless you'd like to go... I'll let you go first on this one. Um, so, I think this kind of plays nicely into the um, point Dan was just making, where maybe the person who originally gave the quest doesn't have the best of intentions, and so they're seeking to gain whatever they're claiming from this lost caravan or vessel for evil means, and so the party sort of has to suss that out through interactions with them, through just interactions with the town folks, that kind of thing. I think that could uh, introduce a lot of interesting dynamics to this whole scenario. What if that money in the caravan was promised payment for that giant monstrosity coming into town, wrecking the guards and destroying the town walls, so that our new nefarious villain over here uh, sort of has an easier way to to edge their way into the uh, defenses of the town? Perhaps this was some sort of a hushed promise that the greatest adventurers in the town would naturally want to go slay this beast. And for that reason, they would have to go out there to fight in its lair. Knowing that there's loot on the line, any adventurers would want to go out there. So perhaps this was sort of putting a worm on a hook and sending the only real threat that the nefarious villain had directly into the den of evil to get rid of them in the easiest way they knew how. So, yeah, so I'm thinking that that villain would probably be the one who either had the money for one reason or another, or maybe that money was just some sort of bait. But I, I do like that kind of an idea. Um, now we can roll up an ally, so go ahead and roll our D12. The, uh, I don't know how to feel about D12s now. I, I'm, I'm feeling kind of conflicted. Well, you know, they, they're they a complicated die. And Truly, 12 signs. That's always what I've appreciated about them. It's just not holy. That's a 9. Okay, so a 9, and I'll let you go first on this one. There is a celestial ally. Oh. That's a tricky one. That is. That sort of brings a whole new power dynamic to this whole situation so maybe after the party receives their initial uh quest essentially to go out and reclaim this vessel and defeat this 
large monster. Um, they are pulled aside by a local member of the clergy, which worships whatever god would most fit for this village. And they sort of get pulled aside and they're offered another what, um, just sort of, I guess, now they have two people they can turn the quest wards into. Um, like, they can work with the person who originally offered the quest, or they can work with this clergyman who introduces them to, I I don't want to say an angel, but I can't think of I was going to say, the issue I'm running into is I'm finding it hard to think of anything celestial that's not big and booming, yeah, angelic that's, or solar. Yeah, that's quite a But usually they, they apply the concept of celestial as sort of like a, a flavor palette, sort of like fiendish as one of those, um, uh, what am I trying to say here, like a, a, a variant type. So you could have a fiendish giant rat, something that's kind of like straight from hell. Uh, so you could offer perhaps a celestial thing. Maybe... There's something of a celestial pegasus or something like that that, like, shows up as an ally but only in very mysterious ways. Maybe the first group that went in there to fight the big evil beast, maybe one of them was a paladin. And the member of the group that is still alive and in the imprisonment of this giant monster is, in fact, the paladin. And so the faithful mount of the paladin is trying to get anybody to follow its mysterious little hints and clues to getting over to the right entrance. So you have something like a celestial pony or a horse or maybe something like a griffin that just shows up sort of as like a, uh, a hint. You know what I mean? Something that flies through the sky at the particular moments. Use it as foreshadowing. Use it as sort of like an ominous potential threat, you know? Maybe maybe allude to this thing as being so powerful that perhaps it's not something you want to cross, but because you don't know what it's there for, it's hard to really tell how you would cross it. You were going to say something? And yeah, you can drop a lot of uh, fun, just sort of roleplay moments for that there, where you sort of have this shadow, literally, if it's a flying monster like a griffin or a pegasus, over the party as they're traveling about, and maybe it always appears either just before danger or right after a battle and sort of seems to always be uh, sort of like a harbinger of what's to come. So if it's always appearing right before battle, they see this shadow swoop overhead and maybe one of the more perceptive members of the party can even make out a faint outline of what it is and then suddenly realize following its shadow into the tree line that there's a horde of orcs or goblins or other nasties out there that was trying to lay ambush. That kind of thing could really lead itself. So they're, they're not quite sure if it's doing it on purpose or if it's even following them at all, but it always is sort of there looming over them. And not to, not to pull the DM screen a little bit back, but for every DM out there who knows the importance of fudging notes and, and rewriting storyline as it appears... You could leave this kind of a concept, if we're doing the whole concept of the shadow overhead and the flying beast, let the players and how they react to this be the ones who are writing how that element of the story goes. I mean, start with the celestial ally, but what if it's actually some sort of a trained beast that works for the nefarious leader? Maybe instead of a hippogriff, I mean, a, a griffin or something like that, what if instead it's something more like a giant bat? Or something like that. Or, or maybe it's something like a, um, um, 
I don't know. I get or or something like maybe an I don't know something like an import closet or something like that. Something smaller and just somehow through some sort of evolutionary means, it it's able to you know be one way or another the way that you describe the situation. And I think there's something really powerful and potent as a DM in following the players where with their motivation goes. If they hear that there's a shadow overhead and nobody gives a crap then like, you know, don't make a huge deal out of it. Try again, poke at him again, but if you find that they're still not biting, you know, try a different bait. But if you tell them that there's an ominous scent of acrid smoke in the air when it flies overhead, and everybody hunkers down and gets ready and hides somewhere, like, play off that energy, you know? And something big about all this stuff is if you, you know, we'll go into the next section right now. You can go ahead and roll a, a d20 for us. But, you know, this next one is for the Adventures patron. And something I think is really great to do is, you know, everybody loves to do the twist where the big, the big helper, the big ally turns out to be a villain all along. Like, as a DM, you have the ability to at any moment flick that on the players. So long as nobody's done some sort of a spell or something like that to prove its goodness or evilness. You know, it, it's really beautiful when you play on what they expect or what they're so not expecting. But just don't do it like a D-bag and you should be all set. So Ryan just rolled a d20, and I don't see a crit, so I'm disappointed, uh, as usual, in Ryan's performance. But I would like to know what you did get instead. You and everyone else in my life, and I got a 7. So with a 7, uh, you get very little satisfaction, but you also happen to have, oddly enough, something you alluded to earlier when we were talking about the uh, Celestial uh, Beast there. Uh, the adventure's patron is a temple official. So we could pretty much just go completely off of what you said, maybe even lock it in a little bit tighter and just say that the clergyman who works at the church maybe is very close with that paladin. Maybe the clergyman is actually the cleric of the party who for some reason, religious holiday or, or premonitions of pain, recognized the need to stay back, but they're the ones who are saying, hey, there's a lot of awful things happening in this town, but also, if you have time, my best friends are kind of stuck in the dungeon, if you'd be so kind. You know? And I, I think that all works out pretty snug like that. The imperative to work for the town speaks for itself. Maybe you meet with the mayor or, or the council or whomever. And then also, the temple official being the one who immediately goes to the party, recognizing, you know, their need in all this, their role in all this. Right? Um, and yeah, and as Dan was just mentioning, that is a great opportunity to start tying in some of the players' backstories into the actual quest itself. Like, um, if any of the players have an important person in their life who is a member of this church or religion, they can sort of work with that. Maybe the paladin is someone's brother or mentor or anything like that. And yeah, if you have a cleric in your party, even better. They can be the clergyman, they can recognize the clergyman and know exactly who the paladin that he's speaking of is, that kind of stuff. To bring real stakes to the table and sort of get an emotional investment here. I mean, you could even go one step further to make it a little bit more, like, flavored uh, for the characters. Maybe this temple official is a temple official from a different temple than what's accepted in this town maybe there's even some animosity towards that person's god and the cleric turns to this party under hush hush and has to be all mysterious and quiet about it maybe they even come to the party in a way that's not really the smartest maybe comes to the party in the dead of night and tries to like sneak into their room or something like that and comes off real scary but tries to persuade the party that they're actually not a bad guy they just happen to worship you know the wrong god in the right town you know 
And I think that that sort of thing, playing on, again, playing on what the players might expect or playing on their energy, really pays off in the end. I think it exponentially increases the fun of the storyline and gets everybody to stay really engaged. Nothing gets the players more interactive than the idea that you, they hear footsteps out of their door at the inn. And when they hear somebody slowly opening up the door and you describe every creak and every little bit and then immediately absolve it, oh man, the look on people's faces. But, anywho, um, and so now, yeah, I mean, uh, and then the last one we have is, a uh, a character, int- I mean, adventure introduction, which is a D12. That's gonna be a two. So the two, uh, while traveling in the wilderness, the characters notice the entrance to the adventure location. So that's kind of interesting. Perhaps the party somehow notices a bunch of dragged marks on the ground of these huge dirt, like kind of a ruts, looking like a caravan was dragged, literally dragged by some kind of giant beast off into the woods. And it like, you know, took out small trees and bushes and maybe even a couple big trees. And they're wondering what could possibly be dragging it this far out only to realize at the entrance to the cave a bunch of dead bodies and a bunch of, you know, terrifying signs of whatever this beast is. Perhaps smoke marks from a fire-breathing dragon, or maybe caustic singes from an acid-breathing dragon. Maybe giant claw marks on the walls from some sort of titanic beast. Um, But I think that's kind of an interesting way, especially because it allows the DM to set up for a reoccurring villain. Maybe the party actually has a run-in with this beast and is not at all prepared for what they have in front of them. Having the party get one beat solid and have to run away is so good for teaching the players to have respect for monsters. And two, it makes the villain that much more satisfying to kill, especially when they learn that, you know, they're holding the paladin from town hostage or what have you. And I I would say what you have to be careful about there is assuming that your PCs are going to make the decision to run away. Yeah, um, so if it sort of looks like they're going to stand their ground to the bitter end to a combat they weren't supposed to win, you should have a backup plan, like the uh, town militia shows up, or maybe that uh, clergyman shows up and does one big spell that sort of repels the baddie but doesn't permanently injure them. Something that'll get them out of that situation where they clearly weren't able to win, but maybe they didn't know that yet. Sure. And, and not to mention also... Don't don't let this giant monster seem stupid and big and beasty. If this thing realizes that the party's doing any damage to it and it's smart enough to be making deals with nefarious leaders to making money and kind of striking a deal around here, have it run away when it notices that the party is throwing a real threat. And even if they're not throwing a huge threat, make it seem like it, it's doing some damage to the beast and have it run away. You know, have it go back in the tunnel, maybe cause a cave-in. Maybe make the players have to find a new entrance to this place. Maybe it blows a a nice huge cloud of smoke and the players can't find the entrance and in the meantime it gets away. You know, make it it seem like instead of the party running away, if it seems like they're going to fight to the end, have the monster run away instead. I don't think every beast wants to get its butt beat and then have to run away at half health. Maybe as soon as it takes a couple hits, it just realizes like, you know, I've had a long day of dragging screaming innocence back to my cave. I'm just trying to throw on some dragon springer, eat a couple pork rinds, and just like chillax on my beanbag chair. You know? Um, well, after that painful joke, um, I got one last one, and this is the ideal climax for the uh, adventure. So we got a D12. Uh, Ryan, if you would be so kind as to try to find the climax for once in your life. Well, I 
don't know a single thing about ideal climaxes, but I can roll dice. It's not the ideal climax. It's not the climax you wanted, but that's max climax right there with a 12. I mean, max is already included in the word climax, but I'll I'll take it from you. It's not the climax we wanted, but it's, it's the one we got. All right, so number 12, the adventurers must discover the main villain's secret weakness before they can hope to defeat that villain. So the giant beast, you know, I, I was talking with Brian about this the other day, but how sometimes it can be really cheap when DMs kind of pull a fast one on players, playing on what they have expected. But perhaps this giant beast is some kind of mega troll. You know, the idea that this mega troll with three heads and six arms is just this freak of nature that regenerates twice as fast and grows extra limbs, and the party tries to kill with fire and acid. And every time they try to do it, it grows another head and another limb. And they're like, how do we defeat this beast? Being able to play off what players expect can be really, really powerful, but can also be a total douche move, in my opinion. And I think that if you play off of players' expectations without ever giving a hint, that it's probably not a good idea to keep doing this, or it's a good idea to at least research into this. I just feel like you're setting the players up to get smacked by like their expectations. That you know what I'm saying? It just feels to me like if anybody who plays D and D knows trolls die from acid, they try, die from fire. You know, to play off of that instead and say that like it makes them grow another head and another arm. You better be very good about making it known that that's what that does, and don't just hide that fact and let them figure it out slowly over time with a oops, I guess you should have double checked. It's just, I feel like, a real dick move to do that kind of thing. So, it, what, what's your thoughts on the matter? Um, obviously, the winning move in that scenario is to keep making it grow arms and heads until it's just a giant troll koosh ball. And then it can't hurt anybody. Those things are as harmless as it gets. You know, I don't know if you really... Of course you do. The game Katamari Damashi. Oh, yes. I almost feel like making a giant troll kushi ball, that would be the effect. It would just roll into town picking up literally anything in its path. And it would just be a big, gory, terrible Japanese mess. But I mean, eventually it'll get so big that it's not your problem anymore. Yeah, it's the next town over. And they better watch the frig out. But yeah, I mean, I think it's definitely cool to find a, a villain's secret weakness. But I find that it's hard to really come up with a really valid secret weakness for a villain. I feel like a lot of times when you do that, it feels kind of cheap. Like, you have things like liches or vampires, which very clearly have, like, the one way you can kill them, or the few ways you can truly wound them. But I think that when you take something like our villain, for instance, a giant monster, like... You can be clever about it. You can try to find some nifty ways. Maybe there's a secret medallion. Maybe it's a construct, you know? And maybe the only way to actually destroy it is by taking the medallion it wears and breaking it. Or taking the other person's medallion and breaking theirs or something like that, you know? But to take something like a dragon and say, Oh, but this dragon's really special. The only way you can kill it is with a special hammer. The glory hammer. Go listen to glory hammer, would you? But... I just feel like sometimes it can kind of cheapen the whole experience if you make some sort of hidden secret spot, you know? No matter if you can shoot womp rats from your speeder. I just feel like it can be kind of cheap to the players to to take that from them. But, um, in any case, yeah. So I think we pretty much only have time for that one adventure, but I do think that that one was a pretty uh, pretty sweet little setup there. And I think that... um, taking that whole adventure into focus i think what's nice about it is everything we've described there seems like you can adjust it based on the level of the party 
And you can, it, I mean, I like an adventure like that because sometimes people say you can adjust an adventure and make it fit for any group and any, you know, any level fits, if it's all. I just feel like that isn't always the case. And it's hard to imagine big epic level adventures, but I don't know, using a pre-written module that was made for first level characters. I just find it so hard to make you know, 20th level characters fit into a first level domain. But this one seems the kind of thing that, you know, pretty much all of the issues with having the giant monster in the area sort of grow with the size of the level cap. You know, if a titan has come out of the ground and did something terrible, this, that, and the other, like, that is just as valid for a high level group as having a, you know, a troll that regrows the limbs and everything would be valid for a group of mid-range or lower-range characters. And I think that that's a real powerful ability to be able to pull that off with an adventure. Granted, we don't have too many details, but I still think this was pretty solid. Um, anything else you want to add to that? Um, I think I'd say that if you're going to try running this adventure or something similar to it, you should keep in mind that these are just, as Dan was saying, loose kind of ground rules, and you can modify them as you see fit. Um, with higher level play, you could actually have a real celestial come down and sure, assist the yeah. party, that kind of stuff. But I, I, I think the most important thing is to just not lose track of what you're trying to do here, which is uh, give the party something to work toward while also just sort of entertaining them and I, I mean i know that's kind of a simple answer that's the whole point of dming as in D D. but like sometimes you can get wrapped up in designing an adventure and you can go far too much in depth before realizing that you know your pcs may never pick up on any of this or half of it so i guess just sort of i i like this kind of style of creation because it's sort of keeps it bare bones and lets you and the party fill out what needs to be done and the important details. Mm. I also really like the idea, going back to what we said earlier about the idea of it being an angel or a solar or something, especially if we go back to the idea that the patron of the mission is maybe that celestial being, and if that one was sent by a god that's not accepted in that town, that brings up a really kind of neat little thing there. Imagine the idea of the one person in town who's telling the party to go out there and go fix this issue is the angel who is hated by the people of town for some strange religious region, reason, as well as the beast out there hates the party too. So it's sort of stuck between a rock and a hard place on that one of do we accept the mission with the angel and forfeit all of our allegiance with this town as well as sign up to be the enemy of the beast in the cave? I don't know. Something about that screams to me of adventure, uh, if you can believe that. Um, but yeah, so I, I think this was a really neat little segment. Uh, any little titles for that quest come to mind? I can't really think of anything. I, I would say maybe the disappearance of, let's go with um, Commanderis's funds or something like that. See, because like, I like to kind of take, I don't know, I always have this weird little poetic twinge to a name and it's almost like a debt paid or something like that. Maybe I'm just a cornball in that regard, but hey, at least it's not true AD&D titles where it's, you know, the dread crypt of the malefic... Da, 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 da. Like, I don't know. Too that, that's exactly what I just did, so... 
Well, all right, right. I'm, when I get that time machine, I'm you'll just see saying, a couple of my models come I'm, up. I'm just <laughs> saying, we. I will go back and post, and I will. I will replace everything you've said with. <laughs> and this podcast will be solid, freaking gold, man. I can't say explicit stuff. Um, but yeah, okay. So without further ado, it's time to go on to our next game show segment. Uh, and Ryan, we've got a doozy here for you today. So without further ado, audience members, assemble! But first, a word from our proud sponsor, Judd Beer. Well, this competition's about to get mighty heated up. This segment's brought to you by Judd Beer. Judd, now with microwavable cans. Or so they say. Judd, try it hot. And like magic, the studio audience appears. Ladies and gentlemen, it is time for a mock version of Minute to Win It. So we've got three games tonight. We've got the Dice Towers, or I guess uh, uh, Ryan wanted a special request title for the game. The Towers of Power. Fair enough. Um, Fair enough. Uh, we also have the uh, Finger Pinky Claw game, as well as, uh, I don't know what I was going to call that one. I called it Slide Into the DM. Uh, it sounds very dirty. Uh, I'm, I'm cool with it. I mean, we got Barbarian posters on the wall. I've got everything I need right now. I but mean, it, it looks like, uh, yeah. No, absolutely. We'll slide, into, absolutely. Yeah, we'll slide into the DMs of the character sheet in front of us. Okay, so which game would you like to play first? Let's go with the uh, Pinky Claw. Sounds like a good game. Alright, so presented in front of Ryan is a set of Chessex dice. Uh, approximately 36, it is 36, 12 millimeter dice uh, brought to you from the good people over at Chessex. This isn't a plug, just an appreciation. Uh, and so the game, uh, what Ryan will be doing for this game is he will be taking Pinky to Thumb and he will be grabbing a D6 at a time and placing it back into the actual casing in under 60 seconds. Uh, if he can complete this challenge in time, he will get one of his three points. If you get two out of three points and manage to beat two out of the three challenges, you get, and I repeat, you get a solid golden already. Ooh. If you manage to get all three of them, I'll give you two Nardis. Since they have absolutely no value at this point, I'm cool with giving you as many as you want. Now, can I do wield on this challenge? Just go left, right, left, right. Wow. Well, the studio audience didn't like that one. Anyway, um, okay. So, Crab Claw Challenge is going to begin... Um, right about... Uh, now, you have one minute to win. Go ahead. I'm going to take one moment to plug. Uh, I'm going to say, if you haven't already checked out the Twitter page, go on over to Y Grognard. No spaces, no capitals, no underscores, no nothing. Over at Twitter. Uh, check it out. Brand new page. But we would be glad to see everybody over there. I'm going to be recording one of these three challenges. Uh, and post it on there if you ever want to see what's up over here. But Ryan, with 30 seconds left, has completely cleared house. He's only got about five of them left. This was not even a challenge for him whatsoever. Um, yeah, so with that, 20, <laughs> seconds, 20 seconds left to spare. We've got a... Hold on, here we go. And the crowd is going absolutely mild right now, ladies and gentlemen. Yeah, and there's hot breath everywhere. Um, so now, uh, with one challenge down, another round of applause for everybody. 
uh, or in a room full of goblins, I guess, a, a, a round of applause. Um, I get it. So, uh, now we can go into one of our two games, either the Towers of Power, or we can do Sliding in the DM. Might as well do uh, Towers of Power, because that's the one I'm going to do the worst at. So, since this one is definitely the most relatable, I am going to record this with my watch, as well as get a video live footage of this one. So, ladies and gentlemen at home, again, go on over to the Twitter page, go check it out if you want to see what this place is all about. Uh, you're going to get a really good view of my main man, Ragra, uh, as well as see what our table is all about, as well as a set of... Chessex dice, brought to you by Chessex. Not a not a, not a plug, just appreciation. All right. So without further ado, um, we'll put on fifteen seconds. Ryan, you got anything really cool you want to plug? You got ten seconds. Um. Any shows you like? Hey, you know what? Spring and Teenage Witch. That reboot, pretty good. <laughs> All right. Yeah, let's start this thing. Okay, sixty seconds. Go. And we're off to an amazing start. I'm gonna bump the table right in the middle of this just to just to tell you what's up. Nope. A solid start. <laughs> you know, everybody does this at the D&D game, but when it's time to do this for solid gold nardies, it seems like this is a much more difficult occasion. I've actually only done this successfully once in my life, and it was one of my greatest moments. You know, so I guess I picked the right challenge to get you to lose an arty. You have approximately 15 seconds left. Let's see if I can even get one. Ooh, do I have to give you half an arty? For... No. Fucking. It's just not my talent. It's, <laughs> all, it's right. all my talent. Challenge is over. And so, ladies and gentlemen, we have a loss. Um, hold on, I gotta please get a nice. Please boot. don't hold on. me. I, I no, don't hold do on. it. Shh, shh, everybody. Oh, there it is. That's what I needed. That's what I needed. But he's a good sport, ladies and gentlemen. He's going on to the next challenge, the final challenge, sliding into the DM. So for this challenge, we're gonna have to take another set of the dice, and what he's going to do is he's going to use a character sheet uh, provided uh, wonderfully from a friend, a mutual friend of me and Ryan, uh, Mr. Jared. Uh, Jared is a spicy young man, uh, one who enjoys the finer things in life, including Fago, and um, I don't know, uh, what, what is he like? Uh, things that are too dope, one might Ooh, say. Yes, 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 shaggy, if you will. Um... But either way, uh, so the character we have on the sheet is uh, a wonderful uh, sh Sugar Slams. Uh, yeah, Sugar spelled with an extra R. I'll let the audience figure out where that is. <laughs> yes, a Schroeberger. It's kind of like a Sriracha. You don't say that R, but it's there for flavor. Um, so without further ado, he's going to be scooping the individual dice up with the side of the sheet. And he's going to be plopping them into each one of the dice bins. He's not allowed to touch the dice with his actual hands, and he's only allowed to use a sheet. You can touch the sheet in any way you want, but it's going to be one die per box. Uh, I'll tell you what, I'm going to get another video of this one, and I'll put this up on the Twitter as well. This one will be less embarrassing for me, so let's put this one on the Twitter and not the other one. <laughs> I'll tell you Please. what, yeah. I'll put this on for the true fans. The true fans, they'll, they'll get to see both. Um, but yeah, so we've got 15 seconds. I'm going to put in a plug real quick. I'm going to say, if you haven't already listened to the Boogie Rock sensation known as Gygax, get on it. 
Also, Glory Hammer, get on it. Both of them got new albums coming out. Ryan, you have three seconds. Ready, set, go. No, no. Easy enough. A fair start, fair start. Now remember, everybody, you've got to get one die only using the sheet into each and every one of these little dice cubes, these cubbies, these blocks, the block cubby cubes. And he's already off to a really good start. Ryan, you've got about 25 seconds left. Alright, after this, I'll make a dice tower too with the. Oh no, never mind. He spoke too soon. Ah, jeez. This is it. This is the one. Oh, okay. We don't need the D6. I already stopped in the middle of it. I'm not going to video record you gloating. Yeah, no, I'm not doing that. You know, trying to ride that thunder. Uh, ended up knocking over a tower in the end. So, without uh, any any uh, any sweat on brow, any sort of pain in the face, uh, Ryan has completed the challenge, thus winning him. An acclaimed and potent, powerful, solid gold oldie, our wonderful pal, without further description, Inardi. Yeah. So, Ryan, I gotta ask you, as the crowd goes mild, whoop, do you have anything you want to say tonight about being a solid winner of your Nardi? Uh, I am looking forward to posting this one right up on those pecs. Uh, uh, now that I have two, I can, you know, just liberally censor them and where they need to be censored and we can finally take this thing to a full live stream audience the the the, the nardies no the whole podcast to a live stream okay let's yeah. bet. <laughs> so, i'm gonna cut to commercial on that one real quick ladies and gentlemen uh be sure to thank your dungeon master and dungeon masters be cool to your players uh, for everybody out there, it's been really nice having you listening to the podcast. Please tune in later on. Make sure you check out, uh, we're on iTunes, we're on Spotify, Pinecast is my home hub. But be sure to check out that wonderful Twitter account, at YGrognard, uh, and I repeat, at YGrognard. No underscores, no spaces, no capitals. I barely have a Twitter at all. Ladies and gentlemen, it's been nice having you. Y'all take care of yourselves.